0: Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So, we are concluding our Lenten series on the Messianic titles, those titles that are used to exclaim our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we have been through a myriad of texts, not just the Gospels, but also some Epistles and Pastorals, and now today we come to the title Lord. Now it's something that we have been saying every single week in our call to worship, but it's something that sometimes we take for granted as Christians because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So how is it that we need to understand Lord any differently now than we would have before this Lenten exploration of ours? Well, it's important because in this text, the first recorded gospel account, we hear Lord multiple times. We hear Jesus tell the apostles that if anyone should question why they're taking the donkey's colt, that they are to say the Lord needs it and will send it back immediately. Notice that Jesus doesn't take, but instead is borrowing and will graciously return what has been given. And then later on, as the people see him coming into the holy city, they are saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord now in the greek of the new testament lord looks very much like any other word capital l lowercase o-r-d but if we go back into the hebrew bible the old testament we find lord looks slightly different it's a capital l and small cap o-r-d which stands for the tetragrammaton that is the personal name of god the father if we were reading in hebrew instead we would see the letters y-h-w-h which stands for yahweh that was the personal name that god had given to god's people but they didn't want to take the lord's name in vain and so they didn't say the name you can't take god's name in vain if you never say god's name it's rather ingenious actually And so when they would come to the text, or they would come to a point where they were talking about the personal name of God the Father, Yahweh, instead of saying Yahweh, the people would play it safe and say Adonai. Adonai means Lord. And so to a Hebrew-speaking person, to a biblical Jew in Jesus' day, hearing Lord had more than one meaning. It was also a reference to the personal name of their God, but it was also a reference to the earthly power of a master. Lord also means master. That's one of the reasons why God the Father gets so angry in the Old Testament about the Baal worship that is happening as the people are living in the midst of Canaanite peoples with their own religion. And there's a lot of Baal worshipers, B-A-A-L. And Baal is a Canaanite word for master and god says i am your only master you should not be worshiping more than one which reframes what jesus will say quite intriguingly isn't it jesus will teach you cannot have and serve more than one master for you will never love them both you will come to despise one of course jesus at that point is reframing it as a choice between god and the earthly pursuit of material wealth money and greed And as Jesus is doing this, he's continuing throughout his ministry to call people to a choice. You must make a choice. He's been asking his apostles, will you come and follow me so that I can make you fishers of people? And they said yes. Then he calls people to the choice. Will you receive the knowledge that I am giving you? And some say yes, and some say no. And then we get to this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which some of us have been hearing about almost our entire lives. Palm Sunday is often a wonderful way for us to get a little bit excited before some of the drama unfolds of Holy Week. And Palm Sunday is always something that the children always enjoy. In fact, right after the nine o'clock worship, there was a lot of tickling and slapping with palm branches, all of which are probably very biblical and they were enjoying going out into the world waving their palm branches just as children and adults did that first day when jesus came to jerusalem but jesus is about making people see him in a new way when you hear lord even though we now exist in a time where we associate lord with christ so readily lord was also a socio-political term it was someone who had lordship mastery over you Perhaps they controlled your land, they might control your town, your way of life. They were the master who got to determine how laws were applied and what punishments there would be for infractions. That doesn't often sound like the Jesus that we have come to know and love. So why would Jesus use that term? Why would Jesus revel in Lord? Because Jesus is asking us to choose a different master. Jesus is inviting us to consider a master who is not like the lords of their day and time, who wanted from them not to give to them. Their lords wanted taxes. Their lords wanted land. Their lords wanted their time and their energy, their gifts and their graces, their labor. Their earthly lords wanted to take and not to bless. But our Lord seeks to bless and to give. And so Jesus is inviting us to choose a different Lord, a Lord that is so different from any other earthly Lord that Jesus crafts the perfect entry into Jerusalem. He chooses a donkey. And according to the gospel account of Mark, it's not just a donkey, it's a colt, a young donkey that has never been ridden before. I don't know if you've ever seen horses that have never been ridden before. Here in Virginia, we're very blessed that once a year, you can go up to the Eastern shore to Chincoteague and watch wild horses being driven across the bay. And you have the opportunity to see as they come into contact with people and some of them will be chosen and they will become riding horses. But the first time, it doesn't usually go so well for anybody who tries to ride those horses. So they're a little bit against letting someone sit on their back, and they were slightly rebellious, and yet here is Jesus who's going to ride this young cult. Now some of the other gospel accounts try to smooth this out by saying that it was a young cult and its mother, as if to assume that the cult will behave better if its mom is around. Well those of us that have children know that sometimes that is just not going to happen, but here we have just the colt and the colt is tied up to a door, and the two disciples that were sent go into the town, and they untie it, and they do have to explain what they're doing. We're not stealing this colt. We're merely borrowing it for the Lord, and we will return it. Notice that there's no follow-up question of, well, who is your Lord? It's none of that. Just the assumption that, fine, you're taking it, you're gonna bring it back, and we will be all right. But instead, we have an experience where Jesus says to His apostles, I need you to bring me this because this is how I am going into the city. And as Jesus is preparing to go into the city, he sees that people are preparing to receive him. They think that he is the one that will change their lives. Their lives have become infected with displeasure. Their lives have become an entire pandemic of oppression and the loss of their joy. They look out at the world, and instead of seeing the palace next to God's temple, a place where people have their monarch who rules over them justly, they instead turn their eyes to the governor's palace. And they see there that Pontius Pilate, the governor appointed by Rome, really rules not only their region, but their holy city. And instead of being protected by the military of their king. The streets are filled with Roman soldiers who are neither Jewish nor of the Covenant nor keeping kosher. And they are there and they resent being there and they resent the people that they are there to police and babysit and oversee because that is the will of Rome. So there's no love lost between the governor and the military presence that is there and the people. But that's what they see every time they open their eyes and they look out their doors. They don't see a world that reflects the lordship of Yahweh. They see a world that reflects the lordship of Caesar and their oppression, the harsh, stark reality that they are nothing more than vassals to another empire but that was not who they thought they were gonna be. That's not who they thought they were created and called to be, covenanted to be. Instead, they thought that they were gonna be God's people and that that would give them security and peace and a place where they could live in joy. So how do we get to this point? What has happened that these people are so infected with this complete sense of loss? So much so that they look back at a time before they even existed and thought, those were our golden days. Things are just getting worse. But they're about to realize that their salvation is riding in on the back of a young, wild donkey colt. And they see him and they're grasping for hope. They throw their cloaks down on the ground. They throw their coats down. Could you imagine if you went to your house and you picked out the best coat that you have? and you threw it down on the ground in Colonial Williamsburg, where they still parade horses. You're not getting your coat back. You don't want your coat back. But that's what they did. They were so desperate for a change that they were willing to take something that was that important to honor the one that they thought was going to bring the change that they yearned for. And they broke off palm branches and they waved them and they sang in anticipation of the salvation that they thought was coming, earthly salvation. They thought that he was coming and they were so excited, maybe he will go right to the governor's palace and he will throw Pilate out. But he didn't. He went to the temple. He went right to the temple and he looked around and realizing it was already late, he then leaves Jerusalem. He goes back out to Bethany where he will stay throughout Holy Week. He will not stay in Jerusalem for several reasons. One, it is a time of the year when Jerusalem is overwhelmed by people who have made a pilgrimage there. Because if you were a male, a male Jew under the covenant, you had to go and make offerings at the temple three times a year and Passover was one of them. So all of a sudden, there was this huge influx of men in Jerusalem. There's a lot of testosterone going on. And that means that there's probably no room at the inn, and Jesus already knows what that is like, so Jesus is not even trying. Instead, he and his disciples are staying at the home of a family that they know, that they love, who have graciously opened their doors and been hospitable to them before. They will go stay with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. And there they will stay, but each day they will have to get up and go back into Jerusalem. But today is the only day that they get this exultant welcome. Today is the only day. Because on Monday, when Jesus comes back in, it's now time for business. And the rest of the week will be about the business of his earthly ministry. On Monday, he will get up and he will be hungry and the fig tree will have no figs. And that will be the setting of the pace for Monday. He will be upset about that. He will go into the temple. He will overturn the tables of the money changers because they have taken what was supposed to be a place of prayer in the presence of God and they have made it into a marketplace. Like Jerusalem didn't have enough of those. And so he throws them out so that they can't distract people from their worship. He throws them out. And then he takes his seat at the temple and he does what he did when he was 12. He starts to teach. But by Tuesday, the priests have had enough of this. And the Pharisees are going, see, we told you this is what he does. He did this everywhere around the kingdom. He would come into our cities and our towns and he would go into our synagogues and then he would teach these things. And then we'd have to run him out of town. And this year, he's doing it to you. And so the Sadducees, the priesthood, were like, you all are amateurs and we are heavyweight champions. We will handle Jesus. And so on Tuesday, they will approach him and they will try to engage him in conversation so that he reveals that he is not the Messiah that the people thought he was. Only they can't win. You can't prove that Jesus isn't what he is. And the Pharisees will come back and try to have another chance They'll try once more to try to use his words to trap him. They will come back this time and they will ask him questions that we still ask ourselves. Do we have to pay taxes? And Jesus will say, as so famously he does, give me a coin. And when they do, he asks whose face is stamped on that coin. And of course, it's Caesar's. He hands it back and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You must pay your taxes. Which is not the answer that they or we really wanted to hear. But that's what he says. And he's already setting up that he is asking them to follow a Lord that is different than everybody else. Most of them wanted to hear, we don't have to pay our taxes to Caesar because now we're gonna pay them to you. But that's not what he was saying. That's not the kind of gift that God asks for from us. It's not about a tax, it's a tithe. It's not about our labor, it's about our love. And so already Jesus is changing the way that they think he should act. And then Wednesday comes to a head. All during Monday and Tuesday, his apostles and his followers are very pleased with Jesus. They probably got all excited when he threw out the money changers and caused commotion in the temple. I'm sure they were secretly cheering every time the Sadducees and the Pharisees asked him a question and he came up with the perfect answer, as he does. I'm sure they were like, yeah, take that. But everything changes on Wednesday. On Wednesday, as is their habit, they will go to the home of someone who has invited them for dinner. Someone whose name includes the title, the leper. They go to Simon's house, and there in Simon's house, something happens that the apostles didn't see coming, and they don't like There in the house, a woman who remains unnamed even to this day, shows up with an extravagant, expensive gift. She shows up with an alabaster jar that in and of itself is priceless, but then it is filled with this anointing balm that is called nard. It comes from spikenard, and spikenard grows in the Himalayan mountains, so it has come very far to make it to Jerusalem. And with this incredibly expensive gift that is almost a full year's wages, she will break the jar and pour the nard over Jesus. Which leaves all of the apostles going, What have you done? Why would you do this? This is so obscene. They will start to have conversations among themselves. Surely we could have done something better with that. We could have sold it. We could have taken the money. We could have helped the poor. There's a whole bunch of poor here in Jerusalem. Surely, as we look out and we see these people, those are the people that we could have helped. Instead, she has poured it all over Jesus. The room is now filled with the perfume of her offering. And Jesus does something that they didn't see coming. He tells them to leave her alone. Leave her alone. She has done something for me. But Jesus didn't spend his earthly ministry wanting people to do things for him. He did things for others. He didn't ask people to come and feed him. He fed them. He was constantly asking people if they wanted to encounter God and allowing them to do that. He wasn't telling people to worship him because he's God. He didn't walk around in his earthly ministry and say, dig me. But here, all of a sudden, something shifts. And they start to wonder, maybe Palm Sunday went to his head. Why would he think that this is okay? If, you, if I came to you and said, I need almost your full year's salary, and if you will give it to me, then we will transform this world, and you gave it to me, and I went and got a giant vat of Chanel number no. 5 and poured it out in the sanctuary, you would not be happy. Some of you would try to do the nice thing and say, you know, it's a little strong in here, and I didn't know that you were going to do that, and so I don't really approve, I'm not really sure what was happening. Others of you would want my head on a platter. And it would start with complaints about, I don't like the smell of that, or do you really think that was a responsible stewardship? And that's the level of conversation that is happening at the dinner table in Simon's house. It is so distressing to them that Jesus is not only allowed this to happen, but is excusing it. That one of them will break. One of his inner circle will have up to here, fed up with it with Jesus. And will leave and go directly to his strongest adversaries, the high priests, and will say, you want him? I can give him to you. And so Thursday, the night of the Passover, when Jesus institutes for us Holy Communion, one of his apostles called by Jesus into ministry and given access, unfettered, unparalleled access to the earthly ministry of God incarnate will betray him and turn him over to those who have been looking for a way to kill him. And that is Thursday. And then Friday, those that have been wanting to kill him but don't have the earthly authority to do so, will hand him over like a sacrificial lamb to the Roman Empire and allow Pontius Pilate to be the executioner. And he will die on the cross. And then on Saturday, everyone will be left reeling. What happened? Just a week ago, everything was amazing. Why are we here? But one of the things that they have not yet begun to process is that on the night in which Jesus was instituting Holy Communion and giving them this tangible encounter with God's grace, for which we have been accessing for almost 2,000 years, as Jesus gives them that, he will say to them something new. Now, Jesus has been saying something new pretty regularly throughout the three years of his earthly ministry. You have said it, heard it said, but I tell you this. He's continually saying things that they didn't expect. For instance, it's getting late and all these people are going to need to eat. And his apostles go, yes, you should send them away. And Jesus goes, I think you should feed them. They did not see that coming. And then once more, he does something they didn't see coming. He says to them, I have a new commandment for you. Now, Jesus has been wonderful about reducing the commandments. An observant Jew was bound to follow 613 commandments in the Torah. 613. Most of us are lucky if we can name 10. 613. And so Jesus said, I will make it easier for you. All 613 commandments are really about this. Love God with all your heart and mind and spirit and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And for those of us who have trouble with memorization, it's like hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And I'm sure his apostles felt the same thing. It wasn't easy to be an observant Jew. And so they probably felt liberated that Jesus had taken 613 and made it just two. But then as The Trinitarian that we have come to appreciate in Jesus since he sends us the Holy Spirit, Jesus says to us, I'm going to give you a third commandment. I'm going to tell you that you must love them as I have loved you. Well, who's them? Who are they? Now, in our modern times and conversations, I'm sure you've heard that, right? Do you know what they are doing now? Did you hear about them? Apparently, it's an entire group of people. They and them. They and them are not us. Whoever we are, whoever I am, they and them is not us. It is not us collectively. It is not even y'all. It's they and them. And those are generally people that we would like to convince Jesus not to save. Those are generally people who have just rubbed us the wrong way or they've legitimately hurt us. Whatever it is, what they've said, how they live, what they do is an affront to us, oftentimes because we have experienced pain and suffering because of it, whether it was intentional or not. And so we wish to other those people, them. So, what does Jesus mean when he says you must love them? Surely there's an asterisk or a footnote or an endnote or some kind of annotation that lets us know that there are some people that are not included in them. I mean, it's only so much them you can take. So how many of them must we love as we have been loved? And sometimes Christians will look for a way around that. They'll think, oh, well, maybe, maybe Jesus means, like, kind of start to love them, but really it'll be brought to fruition when Jesus comes back and we're in the kingdom of god the kingdom to come surely jesus doesn't mean love them full on out for like the rest of my life but jesus doesn't have an asterisk an annotation a footnote or an endnote. his commandment is clear and to emphasize the commandment he will wash their filthy feet you must love as i have loved you love them Them was anyone that was not right there. Them is anyone who is not you and me. Them is anyone who is not ourselves. Love them. Well, haven't you ever had an experience with them? Haven't you ever gone to a dinner party or had an event and you go and they just rub you the wrong way from the beginning? And you spend the whole time tolerating their presence and blessing their heart. And then... When the evening is over, you might say to your significant other or your friend, oh, thank goodness that's over. I couldn't stand them. It was just something about them was just not right. And if we never see them again, I will be all the better. And then Jesus says, you must love them. Well, not them. Maybe it's a different them, right? Jesus wasn't at the dinner party. Different them. No, you will love them as I have loved you. I have loved you when you have sinned. I have loved you when you were willfully disobedient. I have loved you when you knew better and you still did it. I have loved you when you knew better and you still did it and you weren't sorry. I have loved you. I have loved you when you have fallen. I have loved you when you ran and tripped and fell. I have loved you when you jumped off a precipice into the endless ocean of sin. I have loved you. I have loved you when you hurt others. I have loved you when you said things that were absolutely cutting people to the core. I have loved you through your hatred. I have loved you through your violence. I have loved you through your failures. I have loved you every moment of your life and you will love them. And there's still a part of every Christian that goes, what exactly do you mean by them? Them. The people that we call them in our conversations. Those are the people that Jesus is asking us to love. And you think to yourself, I have to love all of them or just like one? Could we have like a token sacrificial them that I can love and then we can be on with this? No. You will love them them. There's no time frame. There's no quantity that fulfills the mandate. You will simply love until there is nothing left of you. Now you can start to understand why Judas was feeling discontent. How can he say that? I'm supposed to love the woman that was absolutely out of her mind. We could have saved hundreds of poor people. I'm supposed to love the guy who is suddenly like so all about himself that it's okay to use almost a full year's wages to honor you? I'm supposed to love the people that have been oppressing us? I'm supposed to love them, the Roman Empire? I'm supposed to love them, the people that have been persecuting us? The people that look at us and go, you're from backwater Galilee and you are nothing? I'm supposed to love them? Yes. Yes, you are. You are supposed to love them and from the depths of our soul comes a cry in the tone of sinfulness that says they are unlovable and from somewhere even deeper than the depths of our soul comes a whisper that the prophet elijah heard in the cleft of the mountain that says and i still loved you when you were too And so Jesus says, I know that you can't do that with your strength, for you are weak. I know that you can't love them the way that I am asking you to love them. So I will give you a piece of myself. I will give you my strength. I will give you a reminder that I have forgiven you because forgiveness is love. I will give you a reminder that my grace, my unmerited favor for you through my sacrificial death will be enough for that is love. I will give to you because I love you and I expect you to give to others because I have loved you. And that night they thought they were eating bread and drinking wine. And so many Christians throughout the world today are partaking in the sacrament of Holy Communion. They are remembering what Jesus said. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. This is me giving myself for you. But how often do we put ourselves in the other position and go, what is it that God is giving me? God is giving me God's self, the one who loves perfectly, the one who is perfect love. God is giving me perfect forgiveness, perfect salvation, perfect grace. When I was unlovable, unforgivable, and unrepentant, God has given me these things. And now I'm supposed to do that for someone as despicable as I once was? Yes. That is the Lord that we serve. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve a master who says it is okay to hate them because you also serve a master who says you must love them and you will come to hate one of your masters. And since it's probably easier to hate than it is to love, you will reject the love of Jesus Christ in favor of the hatred that comes so naturally. And you cannot do that if you are to love the Lord of love. If you want the lord of love to continually give you the grace that you need you cannot hate them so what do you do with that hate what do you do when you have had that hate it's been carefully cultivated in you sometimes by you sometimes by people that you love and who have loved you what do you do with your hate what do you do with the fact that you can't wrap your mind around them have you ever heard someone say i can't imagine how you could be a christian and Them. I suspect that somewhere there is someone at some point who has looked at each of one of us and goes, I don't know how you can be a Christian and them. As if they are dialectically opposed. But God is the one who overcomes our otherness and says, I created you In my image, you are not perfect, you are flawed, but somewhere within you and upon you was an image that reflected me and all of my goodness and my love and I need you to find it and I need you to cultivate it and I need you to embrace it so much so that you push out the sinful hatred, the apathy, the lack of love for them and let me be the Lord of love in you. And that is the hardest thing that his apostles ever heard him say. It was harder than hearing that all of you will betray me. All of you will walk away. That come tomorrow morning, not one, not one of you will be here with me. It was harder to hear than the Son of Man must suffer and die and rise again on the third day. It was harder to hear than that. It was harder to hear than... Even Judas, one of our own, he is gone. He has turned Jesus over. It was harder than that. The hardest thing that he ever said to them was, you must love them. And he told them that before they experienced the betrayal and the death of Jesus. Because he knew that after that, they weren't going to be open to hearing that. We can't love them. They killed you. We can't love them. They were part of it. They stood in the streets and cried out for you to die that Barabbas might walk free. They stood there and watched you suffer and die for their own amusement. We can't love them. But the words of Christ stand. The command, the mandate is, you will love them as I have loved you. And there is no exception. And perhaps today as we draw close to the table, that is what we wrestle with. How can we love them? But to answer that question, we must first ask a more personal question. God, how can you love me? How can you love me with what I have done? with what necessitates not only the grace that I seek at the communion table, but also your death on the cross. How can you love me? Because I love you, you will love them. And that is going to be the most difficult thing that Jesus will ever ask of us. Not to die for him, not to sacrifice our earthly material goods, not to go where he sends us, the hardest thing will be to love them. But you can do that. I can do that. We can do that because we have first been loved. And we have glimpsed it, and we know. We know it can change them. It is changing us. And even if we find nothing redemptive about them, maybe their redemption is enough. Maybe that's enough for those of us who have been radically, profoundly, and endlessly loved to dare to love them. So the next time you're in a conversation or you're at a dinner party, and you hear those words, them, they, from the depths of your being, united with the peace of God's self that dwells within each of you. May you hear the echo of your Lord. Love them. And may you find the strength, the courage, the conviction, and the love to say, yes, Lord, I will. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.